This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds, welcome back for part two of our ACHD and interventional cardiology program. We're here talking with Dr. Jamil Abelhosen and our fellow leads, JD and Victoria. Victoria, I take it you have a fantastic case to share? Sure. The patient is an 80-year-old man with a history of non-obstructive coronary disease, hypertension, and BPH, who presented to clinic with dyspnea on exertion. His echo actually revealed an enlarged right heart in a positive saline contrast study. So he was referred for consideration of an ASD closure with a presumed diagnosis of a secundum ASD. However, a TEE demonstrated a superior sinus venosis defect, which was confirmed on cardiac CT, which also showed that his right, middle, and upper pulmonary veins drain anomalously into the SVC at the SVC and RA junction. Victoria, great case. And what I'll say is I'm really glad that you guys did a workup before you went ahead and made an assumption that this was a secundum ASD for a closure. As a reminder to our listening cardio nerds, there's a great discussion of sinus venosis defects on another cardio nerds episode, episode 106 in our CNCR series with Boston Medical Center, MGH and Brigham and Women's, where we had Carrie Schaefer come on and discuss the nature of the defect. But let's briefly recap on some of that here, because I think it's very hard to visualize these types of defects in your head. A lot of the time, sinus venosis defects get grouped in with atrial septal defects because the physiology is very similar with an atrial level shunt. But in reality, the defect is not in the atrial septum at all. So you will get a talking to by a pediatric and adult congenital cardiologist if you say this is a sinus venosis atrial septal defect because it is not actually the atrial septum. Get your heart models out, cardio nerds, unless you're driving, and take a look at the back of the heart where the pulmonary veins are you'll see that the right upper pulmonary vein actually passes immediately behind the SVCRA junction on its way to the left atrium. A lot of tight real estate there. A sinus venosis defect really can most easily be thought of as a defect in the wall between the posterior aspect of the SVCRA junction and the anterior aspect in the right upper pulmonary vein. The location is really difficult to see well on surface echo. And even if you're doing a TEE, if you're not looking, you may not see it. You have to look posterior and you have to come superior. It's not your standard bicable view that you can always see this. So if you see right heart enlargement and you can't explain it otherwise, you have to keep sinus venosis defects in your differential. They're almost always associated with partial anomalous pulmonary venous return, but often the pulmonary vein actually isn't in an anatomically abnormal position. It's just that the right upper and middle pulmonary veins are doubly committed to the left and right atria due to the venosis defect itself. There are, however, frequently additional anomalous pulmonary veins that drain higher in the SVC. Wow, Josh. Thanks for that thorough explanation. I was genuinely picturing it in my head as you were explaining it. So thank you so much. It's a lot easier to envision these defects now because they are still pretty puzzling. The question I really am trying to think about, should we just try to manage this patient medically? 
or do we close his sinus spinosis defect? I mean, he's 80. He's made it pretty far, right? Is there anything different about the way you approach closing atrial level shunts in a patient his age? You bring up a good point because age really does make a big difference in the way we think about really all atrial level shunts. So in children and young adults, a lot of times we're recommending closure, even in asymptomatic patients, to prevent eventual complications, heart failure, atrial arrhythmias, pulmonary hypertension, even some data suggesting that it prevents premature death. Of course, we don't have randomized trials to prove that it does any of that, but natural history studies tell a pretty compelling story. And an 80-year-old, on the other hand, who doesn't yet have any of these things, no pulmonary hypertension, no atrial arrhythmias, no heart failure other than some dyspnea on exertion, it's harder to argue that we're going to prevent premature death for this 80-year-old. So to some degree, he's passed the test of time, and the likelihood that we're going to significantly impact his risk of developing arrhythmias or pulmonary hypertension is low. So in my opinion, in elderly patients, the best reason to close an ASD is for relief of symptoms. However, anecdotally, and there is some data to support this, elderly patients often really do get a big symptomatic benefit after having an ASD close. And what I have seen and what I've heard from mentors is that those are some of the patients that you can actually expect the largest symptomatic benefit from an ASD closure. But the bottom line is you really have to do a thorough evaluation and make sure that there isn't some other reason the guy's short of breath, because otherwise you're going to put him through a big procedure and not help him. Dr. Abelhosen, does that jive with what you've seen? Well, I think you bring up some very good points, but I'll tell you my own experience as well as a growing body of literature suggests that elderly patients can benefit significantly, actually, from ASD closure and correction of anomalous pulmonary venous return and superior sinus venosis septal defects. And I've seen it many, many times. I think the first point that you made about an 80-year-old withstanding the test of time, that really, what are we trying to prevent? And I get you. I think it's a tough decision if the only options we had were open surgical options. But much like TAVR and Mitra clips, you know, where did we see the utility and the benefit initially, right? It was in the higher risk, non-surgical candidates, high risk surgical candidates that were older, et cetera. And that's where we started seeing, hey, you know what, these interventions actually make a difference. And I think that's where a nuanced understanding that is based not just on reading the literature, but also on observation and understanding that this is a growing elderly population, I think tells me that I approach each of these as an individual. And that's the great thing about ACHD, I think, is that it's not super rare, but it's uncommon enough that you have to have that kind of anecdotal experience play into things and then assess each patient individually. And so in a patient like this that has dyspnea on exertion, I'm sorry, but this patient's not asymptomatic. The patient has dyspnea on exertion. If this patient came in and had severe mitral regurgitation and dyspnea on exertion, I don't think too many people would bat an eye about considering mitra clip, right? But ASD closure, especially sinus venosis ASD closure, which we know is not considered to be traditionally amenable to device closure like secundum type ASDs would be, that causes people to have pause. And then how do you correct the anomalous pulmonary veins? Well, ta-da, we actually have an interventional solution, folks. And as a matter of fact, I actually just did this procedure today before I got on this call where we now can use a covered stent or sometimes multiple covered stents that we sleeve on the inside of the superior vena cava that serve two purposes. One is this covered stent sleeve ends up closing the sinus venosis defect. 
And number two is it helps reroute the anomalous veins posterior to the stent across the sinus venosus defect into the left atrium. Look it up, you guys. This is a procedure that is now performed at many large volume centers that deal a lot with congenital heart disease patients. And there's a fantastic story behind it, actually, in that it was first done in Baghdad in 2013 by a doctor, I think Abdullah is his last name. And the reason they did it is I think they had limited access to surgical care. And this guy basically needs must thought about it and said, well, geez, if I put a covered stent into the SVC and I basically force all the blood from the SVC to go straight into the right atrium, I close the ASD with the edge of the covered stent because this thing's hanging into the right atrium. And where the veins come in to the SVC, they create a bulge right in that area. And so if the stent just leaves the SVC down to the RA juncture, it allows enough room behind the stent yet still within the SVC to get that pulmonary venous blood back to the left atrium. It's an absolutely brilliant solution that they came up with in Baghdad. And then thereafter, we started adopting it around the world. We first did it, our very first case at UCLA, and I can't even believe this now that I think about it, was about three years ago. And we did it as a live case at PICS. We had never done the procedure before. And we decided that we were going to do a live case at the biggest interventional meeting and do our first procedure. Yeah, it wasn't me that had the cojones. It's a guy named Morris Salem, who was the congenital interventionist at Kaiser LA, very good friend of mine, and just a very talented interventionist. But it takes that kind of thing. You know, this is the story of medicine, especially congenital cardiology and congenital surgery and interventions. It's the story of this, people doing these kinds of things. Anyway, the point is that this procedure allows you to basically non-surgically repair uh, sinus venosus ASD and anomalous pulmonary veins, the right upper and the right middle, if they enter in a specific location. And you'll see that SVC will almost always bulge. Whenever you look at CTs or MRIs on these patients, you'll always see that extra volume coming into the SVC causes it to bulge right in that area. And then sometimes it'll narrow just a little bit at the entry port at the crista terminalis area, where there's that sort of muscular entry into the right atrium that you begin to get, that's where you want to engage it down below. Now, one of the problems with this is that the left atrial pressure will rise in older patients. The patient whose case I did today was 72 years old with a superior sinus venosus defect, right ventricular, right atrial enlargement, dyspnea on exertion, basically similar story, but he's eight years younger than your patient. And lo and behold, when we close the sinus venosus defect, the left atrial pressure and the pulmonary venous pressure went up. And it went up, why? Because now we're forcing all the blood that used to cross through the ASD and end up on the right side of the heart to go to the left side of the heart. And that you should always be wary of in closing the ASDs of any older patients or maybe even PFOs, stretch PFOs, in that sometimes these are serving as pop-offs. The left ventricles that are small and maybe have diastolic dysfunction, and so the way I do this procedure is I actually do a transeptal first below the superior sinus venosus defect. I mean, this is going to sound weird the way I do it, but anatomically, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. What I do is I put a catheter from the femoral vein up the IVC into the right atrium through a transeptal puncture into the left atrium, then across the sinus venosus defect into the anomalous vein. And what I'm trying to do there is maintain my access to the anomalous vein, why in case that covered stent goes up too much and now obstructs venous return. 
then I still have the ability to balloon the vein or possibly even stent the vein to rescue that situation. I've never had to do it in whatever, the dozen plus, maybe 15 cases that we've done like this. I haven't had to do that maneuver, but I always prepare for the worst here. And especially when you're doing stuff where, I mean, it was done in Baghdad and then they did some of these in London. And it's not like we're talking here about, you know, coronary stenting where I'm looking at thousand patient series. The last thing I was going to say about the high left atrial pressure is the fact that I did a transeptal. I pull the sheath and the catheter back across and I leave a small ASD in place. I leave a three, four millimeter pop-off for that left atrium. And so if it doesn't need to stay open, we'll endothelialize and close over time. But in this particular patient, he started with a left atrial or pulmonary venous pressure of about 15. After we closed, we put the covered stent in, his pulmonary venous pressure shot up to 24 and the left atrial pressure was 23. So a small gradient, so mild pulmonary venous stenosis was caused, right? At the end of the case, I pulled the catheter through the atrial septum and I left him with a small ASD. And by TEE, he had a mean gradient of eight millimeters mercury, continuous Doppler through that. So anyway, fascinating procedure. That's how I would approach your case. I'm sorry I took a really deep dive into that, but I think this is a very exciting area for interventional congenital cardiology. Dr. Abelhausen, that was incredible to explain. How are these closed surgically? Yeah, so happy to talk about that. And we should also recognize that surgical correction is still considered the standard of care for patients that have these kinds of superior sinus venosis defects. But as opposed to the surgical closure of oxygen secundum type ASDs, you can't just simply patch the hole closed. Because if you do that, then you're going to leave your anomalous pulmonary venous return into the SVC. And so you're still going to have a shunt, maybe not as large of a shunt, but you'll still have a shunt. And so therefore, it requires a more thoughtful surgery that allows the pulmonary veins to return to the left atrium. And so you have to baffle the pulmonary veins over. And a baffle is like a tunnel that is created within it. In congenital heart disease, baffles are very important that allow venous or arterial blood to go from one location to a very different location. It's almost like creating the channel or the big dig. So a surgeon has to basically suture in this baffle from the mouth of those anomalous veins, usually through the sinus venosus defect and into the left atrium. However, if they do that, sometimes they end up with a narrowing of the SVC because there isn't enough SVC to allow you enough space to both have systemic venous return to the right atrium from the nominant vein, uh, so on and so forth, as well as the pulmonary venous return to the left atrium. So oftentimes people would end up with stenoses of the SVC. Now, the stenting procedure I mentioned earlier gets around that by actually having something with radial force in there that keeps it open. But what the surgeons often do is something called the Warden procedure, named after Dr. Warden, who did this, which is to actually put a graft in. And this would be a Gore-Tex graft, typically 10, 12, 14 millimeters in diameter and five, six centimeters in length that connects the brachiocephalic innominate vein confluence, basically the high SVC, to the right atrium. And they usually plug it into the right atrial appendage. And then that allows the lower portion of the SVC, the mid and low SVC, to be utilized as a baffle or as a part of the baffle 
to get the pulmonary venous return back to the left atrium. So there's a couple of ways to skin the cat. I think Josh mentioned earlier about sometimes the right upper pulmonary vein coming in very high. And when I say very high here, it's not above the nominate vein juncture. It's still below that. And it's typically below the takeoff of the azagous vein as well. And so in cases like that, they can't just use one patch. So they have to do a, what's called a two-patch technique to make that happen. One thing that's really important, if you want to be a congenital interventional cardiologist or just even a congenital cardiologist as well, imager, you've got to understand how surgeons do surgery, exactly what they do, and how interventionalists do their job and exactly what they do and what the limitations are. This is why it's really important during fellowship. Even if you don't want to be an interventionist, like, you know, some people come to train with us and adult congenital and say, well, I just want to be an imager. I'd rather not spend a bunch of time scrubbed in the cath lab. And, you know, I usually say this isn't a program for you because I feel very strong that whether you're an imager or an interventionalist, base of cardiologist, non-invasive, you have got to know how things are fixed in order to know how to look for problems with the way that they're fixed and how to call out appropriate interventions and repeat surgeries and such. And this is a great example. I'm so glad you presented this case because this is a nuanced case. The surgery is a big surgery, but we now have a fix that is non-surgical. And so an ECG-gated CTA and a referral to a high volume, it's got to be a high volume, congenital heart disease center that does this kind of work and specifically ask about these kinds of interventions. Because even in an 80-year-old, the patient may actually feel a lot better after they get that kind of covered stent. Well, Dr. Abelhausen, you were right up my attending Dr. Piana's alley about understanding how to fix the problem is just as equally as important of fixing the problem. He makes sure that we understand that. So I really appreciate this explanation. Josh, now that we at least have some foresight that your patient had the option of surgery or an interventional approach, what did you all decide to do? Thanks, Victoria. We did consider certain closure for our patient, which, as Dr. Abelhosen mentioned, is still considered standard of care, first-line therapy for superior sinus venosis defects. But we also recognized that while he wasn't at prohibitive surgical risk, his age certainly made the prospect of open-heart surgery a bit more daunting. And given that our main objective at this point was to make him feel better, we didn't feel like the sternotomy was the fastest way to do that. He additionally wanted to avoid surgery if possible. So we discussed him at multidisciplinary conference and decided to move ahead with an attempt at transcatheter closure that Dr. Abelhosen described. This was our first one of these, and we started the process by creating a virtual 3D model from his CT scan and ultimately printed a 3D print from that model which we found to be really helpful for procedural planning. And Dr. Abelhosen, I know that you've used 3D printing to plan a variety of congenital interventions. And I'm just curious if you could tell us a little bit more about your experience with 3D printing and also what you think the best roles for it are in the future. Good question. If you would have caught me with that question seven, eight years ago, I would have said to you, absolutely, yes, I 3D print everything, or maybe even three years ago for this particular lesion. Yes, let's 3D print everything. But I actually don't do that much anymore. And the reason I don't do it much anymore is I rely so much more now on ECG-gated CTAs, a systolic and a diastolic phase, 
And I have a Mac with Osiris, which is basically a rendering software that allows you to do multi-planar reconstructions, curve MPRs, and those kinds of things. But I essentially use that now. And then I know the equipment that I'm going to use. So I essentially make all my measurements and do all my modeling digitally these days. And people are doing cool things where they're using a variety of programs, Mencio Horse, to basically take scanned devices and then kind of plop them into specific locations. That's what happens now when you want to do a Harmony Valve, an Altera, Medtronic or Edwards, respectively, will do these prints for you and then lay the stent and the valve on the digital 3D image to show you exactly where it should sit. We printed a ton. We printed the hearts for a variety of trials when we were doing native RVOT lesions. But it's so variable because it's dependent on the materials that you print with. So hard, plasticky, see-through materials, as nice as they are, those are teaching tools. In my mind, those are useless for telling you how the heart's going to behave. Utterly useless. And the reason I say that is nothing behaves like that. Heart is a moving, dynamic organ. To simplify it down to a frozen piece of plastic and think that that's what you're going to go and do in the cath lab, you got another thing coming. No way. I've actually made mistakes based on those. Softer prints with more pliable materials are more helpful. But again, I don't think absolutely necessary if you have the kind of software that I mentioned that allows you to do multi-planar reconstructions. You have a 3D printer, will print things occasionally, but I've seen my use drop off immensely in the last, I would say, three years. Great. Thank you so much. And in our case, we used the 3D model since it was going to be our first one. And as you mentioned, we did print it from a soft, pliable material that was meant to mimic cardiac tissue. And we were able to test a variety of balloons in the anticipated position of the eventual stent. And what we were trying to make sure that we could do is to make sure that the covered stent would allow for adequate drainage of the pulmonary veins behind that stent into the left atrium, as you've already mentioned. And with the balloon inflated in the SVC of the 3D model, we felt that there was definitely enough room for the large right middle pulmonary vein to drain into the LA. But there was a smaller right upper pulmonary vein that we felt was a little borderline. And we decided we'd have to find that out at the time of the procedure. JD, can I ask you real quick before you go on? The other vein, this more superior vein, was it coming in at a much higher location or at the same confluence? It was pretty much the same confluence, but it was really as far away as it could get while still being considered the same confluence. It was almost like two separate ostia that were right next to each other. Yeah, I got you. Those are the toughest ones, honestly, because if it's much higher up, then you just leave it. You land the stent below it and you leave it. So what? Guy has a QPQS of 1.1 to 1 or 2 to 1. No big deal. It's when they come in very close to each other, but the superior vein isn't involved in that roundabout kind of bulge that you end up getting where you can end up obstructing it. Now, here's the deal is if you obstruct a single vein, some people handle it just fine. And there's actually venous channels within the lung that will allow the drainage to go through that right middle vein. Some people not so well. So I'm curious to see what happened with this, JD, because I've had this situation and I've kind of gone both ways on. I'm so glad you brought that up. That is perfectly placed foreshadowing. All right, JD, you and Dr. Albelhausen had mentioned the seclusion of the pulmonary vein. It really kind of blows my mind and it sounds like a really big deal. How do we know during the procedure where you're going to be able to safely place the stent or not? 
So it's imperative in especially borderline cases, but I do it for pretty much all the cases to actually have a catheter up in the most superior of the veins, if you can. Unless obviously there's a much higher vein that's coming in, which you plan to not stent across or leave alone. But otherwise, it's important to actually have a catheter in there and you've got to do a transeptal. Why? Because you have to get into the left atrium, go through the superior sinus venosus defect and into the anomalous vein. So I typically use something like a Jupkins right, five French JR to do this. I use a VersaCross system and I'm usually at this point coming in from the left femoral venous approach to do the transeptal. Because the right femoral venous approach is used to put in the long sheath to actually put the stent in. So I come in from the left femoral vein, and this is under TE guidance, use the VersaCross system and just go an RF through the septum right in the area of the fossa ovalis. So it's going to be well below where the sinus venosus defect is. Cross right there, leave a sheet in the left atrium, and that's an eight and a half French sheet. And through that, put a five French JR or MP1 diagnostic. And then curve that catheter rightward in order to get a VersaCore wire. You use a wide wire, really any sort of soft, pliable wire, 035 or 038, going into the right pulmonary vein, and then thereafter walk the catheter into that anomalous vein. And now, if you have two transducers, and I usually have more than two transducers up for this kind of case, you can directly monitor the left atrial pressure and the pulmonary venous pressure. And so you go up now through the right femoral vein to balloon test the SVC. And if you use a really compliant balloon, like say an HEA 24 or 34 millimeter ASD sizing, that thing is great. By the way, one of its less known uses is for it to mold to the inside of any sort of vascular chamber that you put it into. So if you want to take a look at venous narrowings and such, put a nice compliant balloon up and it'll just mold to it. But that's a disadvantage in this setting because it means it'll bulge more in that area where the veins come in and actually make it look like you're going to obstruct the veins with a compliant balloon. When if you use the less compliant balloon, like a bib, for example, balloon in balloon, which is what we put stents on, and that's the balloon that you're going to put the stent on. If you then use that kind of balloon, it may give you a very different answer. It may not show that the veins are actually getting obstructed because it doesn't bulge into that area where the venous confluence comes in. So we do both. Like today, I did both. Went with an AGA balloon first, and sure enough, it had a chubby bulge right where the veins came in, and it looked like it was obstructing the veins on an angiogram through the catheter that was in the pulmonary vein. There was hang-up of contrast. There was a four or five millimeter ripple gradient between the vein and the left atrium. And then switched that out and put in a 24 millimeter bib instead of the 34 millimeter AGA. And sure enough, with a 24 millimeter bib, there was beautiful flow. And so then I stented. The way I do it is I actually put an anchoring uncovered stent first into the SVC above the level of where I'm going to put the covered stent. And actually today I used, I think it's the first commercial use of this stent that got FDA approved in the United States. It's called the G-Armor stent. It's a 10 zig 6.3 centimeter stent that was designed by none other than the great Dr. Gareth Morgan who's about my age. He's a really good friend of mine too. And shout out to G-Money. He actually got this stent designed and FDA approved. So we put it in today and it's a nice long stent. And then I like to put in a second stent that's uncovered up top as well to sandwich it in. When you're using a really long stent, a six centimeter stent, 
that you're trying to flare into the right atrium from the SBC, there's a good chance that that's going to embolize, right? Because let's say you're going from 22 millimeters up top to 34 millimeters at the bottom. If you try to make a stent into that kind of cone shape, it's going to actually lose its interference up top. So you have to kind of anchor it and sandwich it up top to get it to do that safely. But anyway, if you go through those steps, it's very likely you'll get a good result and will not obstruct the veins. But if you do obstruct the veins, you have the ability to still actually intervene on that obstruction because you have a catheter out in the pulmonary vein. So you can balloon the confluence or you can stent it if you need to. Does that all make sense, you guys? I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you here that typically requires a two-year ACHD fellowship. But you guys seem to be getting it, and that's great. But I'm happy to answer any questions about it. No, that's great, Dr. Abelhosa. Thank you for running us through that. And that is pretty much a rundown of exactly what we did. But of course, before we decided to start the procedure, since it was our first time doing it, we decided to get some expert help. And we reached out to Dr. Shaquille Qureshi, who had published a relatively large series on this in Jack a couple of years ago. And he actually agreed to be present along with his partner, Dr. Eric Rosenthal, on Zoom for the duration of the case, which was really very helpful to us for our first one. So just some of the nuts and bolts of the procedure, we established a rail from the right femoral vein to the right IJ and externalized that stiff wire out on both sides. Our patient actually had a PFO, which was easy to cross. So rather than going transeptal, we just used the PFO and placed a long sheath in the left atrium, like Dr. Abelhosen described, and then accessed the pulmonary veins through the sinus phenosis defect, as you mentioned. And just like you mentioned, we had a pigtail catheter up in the right upper pulmonary vein through that left atrial sheath and had pressure transducers on the pigtail catheter in the vein and the left atrial sheath in the LA. And so we were able to not only monitor pressures, but also take angiograms in the pulmonary vein with the balloons inflated in the SVC. And just like you said, when we inflated a compliant balloon in the SVC, we saw a distinct bulge into that small right upper pulmonary vein and the pressure went up and angiography demonstrated that it was a very small vein, but it was occluded by that balloon. So we used a non-compliant balloon and demonstrated flow into the left atrium, but we still felt that the vein was at risk of occlusion. So before we moved forward, we talked it back and forth with our experts on Zoom. And again, it was very helpful to have them and asked one of our congenital surgeons to come in and take a look at the angiograms before we decided to move forward. Ultimately, what we decided was that this vein was very, very small and that even if it was occluded, it would be relatively unlikely to be of clinical consequence for him because of the large size of the right middle pulmonary vein, which was draining most of the right lung. Okay. So now we've gotten to the point where we're actually going to place the covered stent. And Dr. Abelhosen, you've walked us through a lot of terminology as well as sort of a number of considerations in terms of strategies to potentially anchor stents in the SVC to prevent embolization, to potentially use different maneuvers. We did talk about sort of the G-Armor stent, which sounds like a more recent innovation. But could you tell us a little bit about what in your mind makes for a covered stent that is a good choice for the procedure itself? What is it about the covered stent that makes it a good one for the procedure? Yeah, I gotcha. So there's really only one choice prior to the G-Armor coming on market. And we'll see how the G-Armor performs with others. This is just the first commercial implant. So we'll have to see. But it's called the covered CP stent, the Cheatham Palmas stent. It's a platinum iridium platform. It's actually the stent on which the melody valve is based as well. 
And then it's got Gore-Tex covering on the outside of it. And they come in various lengths. The problem with it is it doesn't come in greater than six centimeter lengths at this point, at least commercially available in the United States. They can custom make stents that are longer, but the major downside right now to any of these stents, even the commercially available GR, which is only 6.3 centimeters, when you expand these things, they foreshorten. So at the end of the case, it was 5.1 centimeters long. And the problem there is that means that if you don't put enough of that stent up into the SVC well above those veins, it's going to be poorly anchored. And there's an embolization risk. You know, you mentioned Jack Qureshi and Eric Rosenthal. If you look in their series, they had not a huge number of embolizations, but a few embolizations reported as a complication of this procedure. So my main concern about the available covered stents is how short they are and that we need longer covered stents. Now, we came up with kind of an interesting solution if we needed more coverage and we were uncomfortable trying to put multiple stents inside each other, we didn't feel that was going to be a stable platform, we actually sutured stents together. And so created a really long 10 and a half centimeter interdigitated stent that was two six centimeter stents or a six and a five centimeter stent that worked together. You know, again, totally like off-label stuff. You would never try this in the coronary world because you get excoriated if you had a complication. But when you're in congenital land, it allows for a little more leeway for that kind of stuff. But yeah, I don't think we're quite there yet as far as covered stents. We need longer ones. But the CCP, the covered Cheatham Palmas stent, is the go-to in most of the country. And in most adults, especially adult males or females that are taller, where you need more than five centimeters of coverage, you're looking at using two stents, which inherently is going to have some additional instability because now you're having to overlap two stents at various sizes. And that's where using these anchoring and sandwiching stents becomes really important, using uncovered stents to tack down two covered stents where they overlap. So we've used that technique as well. Thank you. That gives me a lot of information about how you think about things technically and making sure that you are covering the surface area that you need to. And also taking that stent out of the box, knowing that it's going to force shorten. And that's a huge consideration when you're thinking about the amount of real estate you need to cover in the way that you're going to set up your stent and having an adequate avenue around for the pulmonary veins to go. It's just a lot of three-dimensional thinking and making sure that you have what you need. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is you can't also be too formulated, which means that it's important to go in with a plan and be prepared and have done all your homework and do everything that JD was bringing up there and that we've been talking about. So that's key to success. But another key here is you have to also be nimble and realize that there's heterogeneity, that you may get information right there on the spot that makes you change your game plan. You may have to shift it up completely. You may end up with some displacement of the stent. How are you then going to tack it down? What are you going to do? How are you going to solve it on the spot? So it can be super stressful, but you can't prepare for every eventuality. But you should have enough stuff in your locker to be able to get yourself out of trouble. This is not something you do as a one-off or even as a two-off. And I'll tell you why. The reason is that it actually takes a certain critical volume of these kinds of cases to be able to get yourself out of trouble. The key isn't to interventional cardiology and especially interventional congenital. It's not being able to do a procedure. Oh, can I put a valve in? That's not the hard part. The hard part of it is when you run into trouble and there's a complication, there's a dislodgement, there's an embolization, there's something that's unexpected. Do you have the tools to actually save that patient's life and get yourself out of trouble? And are you able to do that? 
And if you can't do that, then you're better off letting somebody who can do that, do that procedure on that patient. And that's where expertise and critical volume comes into play here. And this is a tough topic to tackle. Why? Because it rubs up against territorialism and ego. And let's face it, we all want to be fighter pilots, right? So it's like, oh, well, what do you mean I can't fly the F-22? You know, of course, just because you told me I can't fly it, I'm going to go fly it. But this is where we have to be smart about what we do and how we do it and really get a critical volume, get a critical amount of expertise, go and rotate with places that actually do a lot of this, come back, start a program. That's how you do it. So what we did is we actually did apply for one of those custom made eight centimeter long cupboard stents and ordered it from the manufacturer in advance, which is a little bit of a pain because you have to get FDA and IRB approval since it's a compassionate use device. But it really worked great. We were able to, with the help of our proctors, position it just right so it had enough length up in the SVC to anchor sufficiently. But also because it was so long, it came down enough that it actually left no real residual shunt. At the end of the case, as Dr. Abelhosen mentioned might happen, we did see that that very small right of pulmonary vein was almost occluded. But the patient was discharged the day after the procedure and it now at least a year or so out, he feels a ton better and he never had to undergo surgery. So it was really a win for him. So can I ask you, are there certain features of the sinus venosis anatomy that you would consider to be a higher risk for this type of procedure? Just to kind of follow that line of thinking, to understand that there may be complications and you may need to get yourself out of trouble. Yeah, I think the two extremes are, in my mind, the highest risk. One extreme is if you have a persistent left SVC, and so therefore the right SVC is small, then your risk of actually obstructing the pulmonary veins is, in my opinion and my experience, higher in those cases. So that's one. The other extreme in somebody who's really tall, who's got a big SVC and a long distance that you need to cover, the fear about having appropriate stability. There now you're trading off a lower likelihood that you're going to obstruct the veins, but a higher likelihood that you're going to have instability. And veins are very tricky to stent. I've embolized a lot of stents in veins and devices over the years. Why? Because in an artery, you go, okay, well, I'm going to oversize it 20, 30%. Great. You put your stent in, it's super stable. If you do that in a vein, you're going to embolize that stent. You often have to go 40, 50% more. It is a very compliant structure. Both extremes can be scary, but in the end, this is one of those things where you've got to have a lot of experience, and especially with this kind of work, large diameter stents. You know, the difference between coronary interventions and these kinds of interventions is that it's almost like someone riding a motorcycle versus somebody driving an 18-wheeler. We're driving 18-wheelers. It's a very, very different experience. Much larger delivery systems and balloons and huge sizes. You're putting things up to 24, 26 millimeter diameters. So it just takes a certain amount of training and experience to be able to do it. And that's why I strongly recommend that for people that want to try this kind of thing, it's best to actually send it to a high volume center and then go to the high volume center and join it. Learn how to do it. Or you can get proctors to come in as well or come in via Zoom. But it's important to get a critical mass, a critical number of cases under your belt. JD and Dr. Albahos and, and Dr. Gabriel, even though she's not here right now, y'all are so inspiring to me. As a second year cardiology fellow going into intervention and someone who has a passion for health equity, 
ACHD is a field with a special patient population that needs more discovery and equity. So it is a high interest of me. And you keep talking about how does someone go about getting into training as an ACHD provider that's an interventionalist? What's the pathway that you would go? So actually, there is a statement from SCAI that was published in 2020. And it's basically a guideline statement regarding the necessary training, competency, and institutional requirements for ACHD interventions. And it actually gives volumes. I was actually a first author on that, and I'm not just trying to raise up my own work, but this was actually a critical thing that SCAI wanted to do because there just was no standard that anybody was following. It was just all over the place. And it's unfair to expect that people do a two-year ACHD fellowship if they're ever going to do ACHD interventions. We're not going to get anybody doing ACHD interventions at that point. So what are the training requirements for people that are not ACHD interventionalists? So we brought together representatives from the ACHD world, from the structural interventional world, and from the pediatric congenital interventional world. And so it was basically 30, 30, 30%. So it was equal representation. And we got into different working groups and tackled this difficult topic and ended up voting on everything and came up with basically training recommendations, which state that you should do at least 150 diagnostic and interventional cases. And at least 100 of them should be interventional cases. And then we go through and give volumes for how many you should do of each. I don't remember all the exact numbers, but 12 pulmonary valve implants, for example. How are you going to get that volume if you're an adult interventional cardiology fellow or interventional cardiologist? There's only one way you're going to get that kind of volume, really. And that is to work with pediatric or ACHD specialists, those that have congenital centers. And that's really, really important. And actually, that's the way you give the best care when there's multidisciplinary collaboration. The poison in our field is when people want to go it alone. And someone that says, oh, well, you know what? I'm good at TAVR, so I'm going to just do pulmonics. Yeah, okay, good luck. Because you know what's going to happen? You're going to injure the tricuspid valve. You're going to tear the pulmonary artery. There's a lot of things that happen there. So work with the congenital cardiologists on that. Just like the congenital cardiologists should work with the TAVR specialists to do a TAVR and a bicuspid patient. Don't just take them on your own and say, you know what? Well, hey, I do pulmonics, so I'm going to do TAVRs. So this is where our field is really going to benefit. And my advice to you, Victoria, as an incoming interventional fellow in the next year and a half, and this isn't just during fellowship. This is a lifelong thing. Work with people that know what they're doing and learn from them, and then you'll get better at what you do. And eventually, you know, a rising tide will float all ships. I basically trained as an adult cardiologist and then as an adult congenital specialist. And then my interventional training was actually with pediatric cardiologists. I had to learn a brand new language, learn to work on babies and children and adults. People were like laughing at the road that I took, but it actually is a road that led to a place of specific expertise for this specific population. But I think it's approachable through various ways. And that SCAI statement that was published in 2020, Levy is the last author. It's got Hijazi, it's got McElhaney, it's got a bunch of the leaders in these multiple fields that have all agreed to those volume requirements. And so I would say stick with that. And wherever you end up going to do your adult fellowship, see if they actually have a pediatric and congenital program and see if you can get some time with them. Oftentimes, they're really happy to have you. 
Like we're always super happy when an adult interventional fellow comes and goes, hey, you know, can I like scrub in with you? And can I go, great. But with one requirement, and that's that you've read up about the case and you know what we're doing. No tourism, right? When people show up and go, I don't know what you're doing, but can I scrub in? And I go, no, you can't scrub in. Sit back there, learn what we're doing, and then you can scrub in on the next case when you've learned about it. But I think you'll find that people will be open to having you do this stuff, Victoria, as long as it's an honest effort that's being put in. I think that's what people want. Sometimes it's taken as, oh, it's exclusionary. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I think it's wanting to show that they have a true interest in this. And it's not a one-time ego thing that they're doing to say they did it. That makes perfect sense. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Avalos. And I mentioned earlier in the first episode that I had called both you and Dr. Gobri all up out of the blue a few years ago when I was trying to figure out the answer to that exact question that Victoria just asked, which is how do you train in ACHD interventions? What I can say is that your advice was invaluable and that SCAI paper has continued to be invaluable as I've used it to sort of track my progress and make sure that I'm getting adequate training. And you mentioned that people have laughed at your crazy training pathway and I'm feeling quite the same way at PGY9 coming up on 10. I've done basically every subspecialty fellowship you can figure out, but at the end of it, I think I'm going to have figured out what I need to know to do this. So thanks again for your advice. Yeah, no problem, JD. Thanks for saying that. I just want to take the time to thank everybody for what was a great discussion. I learned a lot about the technical considerations in doing this, which is one of the latest and greatest procedures we have available for patients with congenital heart disease. And then last but certainly not least, I want to thank our wonderful CardioNerds co-founders, Dan and Amit, for sharing this space with myself and my ACHD co-chairs to share our passion for the field. And we look forward to having them back for the next podcast edition. So thanks, everybody, and thanks for tuning in, listeners. Thank you again so much. This has just been really motivational, so I appreciate everyone that's been a part of this series so far. Appreciate your invitation, you guys. Thanks for listening to me ramble on here about my hobby. And best of luck to all of you with your careers. I expect great things out of you. Thank you. I would say it's one of the coolest hobbies I've ever heard of.